Our guest today is Nick Young. He is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of Oxford, studying the metacognitive and neuromechanisms of human thinking and reasoning in areas like decision confidence, mind wandering, and task switching. There are so many interesting questions that uh, I wanted to talk about in the space of metacognition, and I'm not too sure where the best place to start is. So let me begin by asking something that uh, has been bugging me for quite a while now. Uh, what do you think is the nature of thoughts? What is this voice in my head? Okay, well, so there, there are two different aspects that, right? So there's the nature of thoughts, and then there's this idea of... Um, metacognition which you referred to right so that your thoughts about your own thoughts so do you have a do you want me to talk about both of those or do you have thoughts on so one of them is, is cognition right so it's you know part of you know the nature of thoughts is the thoughts that you have and experience so you know your your perceptions of the world your the memories is that that you retrieve the the thoughts that you have as you solve problems or make decisions right but then and they're what we might call kind of the I suppose first order processes, the basic thought processes, and then the idea of metacognition that you referred to a moment ago is, is your own experience of those thoughts and your, your reflections on those. And it, it starts to sound a bit sort of um, like too many psychologists <laughs> um, getting obsessed with everything, but we, perhaps as, as the questions go on, um, we might, we'll talk more about what, what metacognition really is and what it's for and, and give a sense of why it's an interesting thing to study. It, so maybe, did you have a specific aspect of that you're interested in? Are metacognitive thoughts not thoughts that, themselves? They are, yeah, yeah. So so if, if we're talking specifically about those, yeah, then I think that idea that we we experience our, our thoughts and, we, and we, we reflect on them and that we also know stuff about how people think or we have past experiences that, you know, so a simple example would be, um, uh, I always forget what I went to, I always forget something when I go to the shops, right? And so that's some knowledge that you've gained from your past experiences. And now the next time you go to the shops, you might think, you know, even if you're at this moment think, oh, I'm, there's no way I'm gonna forget to buy eggs today. Um, you nevertheless think I'll write a shopping list because you know, I always forget. And so that's, that's that interaction between what you're doing right now and these, these reflections and part of it's your knowledge. But part of it's also that, that experience that you have in the moment, like, oh, I won't forget this. Right. And so I gave the example of shops, but a lot of this work has been done on metacognition in the context of education and learning. Right. So part of the idea is that that people are constantly um, reflecting on their learning. So students uh, having to think about, well, have I learned this? Do I need to study this? If I'm revising, what's what's the best use of my time? What did I do? I feel like I already know well enough versus not. And so those sorts of metacognitions in this case about your learning and memory start to be quite you can see hopefully immediately how that can be quite important so let's talk more about this nature of thoughts uh, you mentioned that it was perception and memories do you have a sense as to why does that manifest itself in in the voice in my head well, so that gets exactly to the kind of question that I'm really interested in, which is what the function of these metacognitive processes are, right? Um, and a key idea then is, is, is about that we have these because it's useful to help 
guide our behavior. Right? So it might be, for example, um, uh, if you think about perception, you might think you saw something, right? Or you might, uh, um, but you might also evaluate the reliability of that perception, right? So I, I think I saw something, but it, it was only a glance out the corner of my eye. So imagine that, for example, in, in a specific one might be um, where, where it becomes consequential and obviously consequential might be in a, an eyewitness in a, in a court case, right? And they, they might have to decide, well, how clearly did I see this person be accused in, in, in the incident, right? And what they might, and so they're not just saying, what did I see? But they're often asked to reflect on how confident they are in what they saw. And then they're gonna use these, these reflections. So, you know, was I paying attention? Um, was I looking directly at it? Or did I see it out of the corner of my eye? That kind of thing, right? And that's really important. And, it, and it, you can see obviously how it's just important in general, you know, so you, you can see how that will give useful information. And it seems that people are really sensitive to it. So one of the things that um, research has shown is that in eyewitness testimony, a, a big influence on whether jurors or, or whoever making decisions um, take into account is the confidence of an eyewitness. And, it's a, and, it, and, you, and that makes sense, right? Because, and so, you can see how consequential that can be then in, in how you evaluate that. And that's in the case of perception. And I've already talked about the kind of case of memories. You know, you think you've learned something, but how confident you are might decide whether, you know, you take the day off today or you, you go back to the library on at the weekend because you really need to get, you know, this, this information into your head ahead of an upcoming exam or whatever. So in terms of like the neurobiology, the neurobiological basis of thoughts, would you say that um, it comes, it emerges from the, all of your cognitive and metacognitive processes. Def yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and they can often be hard to separate, but yeah, I think they're, they're in there together. And that, so yeah, going back to, I suppose, what you thought about, you know, what the point of this, why I have this little voice in my head is that it's actually really useful, right? Because that, that nagging voice in your head is useful to you, right? Which is that, you know, Yes, you studied something, a topic for three hours yesterday, but did you really learn it, right? And that little voice in your head is actually the one that's kind of getting you to go back to the library the next day when there's something, you know, perhaps much more fun going on, right? Um, but that little voice in your head is also useful for other people because when, let's say, you're, you turn out to be an eyewitness, that little voice in your head that says, okay, you think you saw that, but how sure are you, right? Because, oh, yeah, you're going to glance out the corner of your eye or it was dark at the time or, you know, even if you reflect on your experience, you know, I think it was that person, but it actually really, when I, when, I, when, I, when I think about it properly and evaluate it, am I really sure? Because, you know, there's a lot riding on this, this my testimony for, for a person. And that's going to be important for then other people interpreting your testimony and how much weight to put on it, you know, alongside all the other evidence they're considering in the case. It seems like this voice in my head has, sort of like a mind of its own so like you know if we when we introspect about our thoughts and the stream of thoughts it's it seems like I have no control over them whatsoever do you think that we have any control over our thoughts yeah yeah I mean clearly in a sense we do I think um there's an important sense in which we don't have control and I suppose partly when you're talking about the little voice in your head it starts to edge over into sort of thoughts about where it can start to be maladaptive right so if, if the, the little voice in your head as it were is saying things to you that make you consistently unhappy right or worry to the point of doing things that 
you really need to be doing to function effectively or the way you want to function in your life, you can start to see how this um, uh, um, touches on issues in kind of mental health and um, psychiatry. And that's one of the applications of metacognition research is thinking about in cases where perhaps the little voice in your head, as it were, is too loud or, or too critical. Um, there can be problems. I mean, it, it can, there can be problems at the other end. If, you, if, you're, if the little voice in your head is telling you you're absolutely certain about things that you shouldn't be certain about, that can be a problem too. I, I suppose. Um, a lot of the research has been done at the end of thinking about depression or anxiety and the role that these sorts of these self-evaluations have there. Um, another thing I wanted to get into is this interesting relationship between thoughts and the self. So like when I, why is it that when I, I can keep thinking about something, but I can tell myself not to think about it. So like, or doing mindfulness when I'm aware of my stream of thoughts, like how is that possible? Like, how is that possible if, like, am I not my thoughts? Or is that like two different things in there? So there's this research on um, mind wandering that I think is quite interesting in, in that. And, and it's something I teach about in, um, and so I reflect, sort of think about in the context of that with my students sometimes of what, what it means. So there's an interesting aspect of mind wandering, which is that you, um, a trying to do task, it might be, you know, a, a, a good example is, is studying or reading. So, um, because that's one context in which it's been studied quite a bit, because experimentally it's um, quite easy to do. So you have somebody reading something and, and or you might, you know, if you imagine yourself reading in the library and so every now and again, you, you find yourself suddenly that you're not reading anymore, you're thinking about something else. Okay, and that if usually if I say that to students, they, they immediately kind of say, yep, I, I recognize that experience that you suddenly come to and realize that um, you're not thinking about what you're what you're reading anymore. Um, there are interesting kind of expressions of that. So, you, for example, in when you're reading, usually your eye movements are really tightly controlled relative to what you're reading. There's this beautiful research on eye movements in reading and this incredible kind of find control of where your eyes are looking on the page. And you might know that as you read across the page, your eyes aren't, even if it feels like you're scanning smoothly across the page, actually your eyes are jumping and they jump and land on particularly the important words in the, on the page. Um, they, they stay longer on important or surprising words in a sentence that, you know, so if something um, very interesting or important or surprising happens in, in the, the thing that you're reading, your eyes will kind of stay on those words. And that, that relationship between kind of eye movements and the words on the page um, breaks down when people are mind, re uh, mind wandering. So that person might still be moving their eyes over the page, but you, you stop seeing that very kind of um, tight control where it's the important words and the surprising words on the page. And it really much is much more like you imagine your eyes are doing normally, which is what they're not, which is they sort of, your eyes are just moving um, smoothly across the page and not really taking anything in. Like a very reflexive action. Yeah, yeah. So it's much. So you're going through the actions of reading without actually um, taking taking much in, and that's an interesting case, right? Because but you know you're aware of your thoughts almost by definition, right? You're thinking something, and um, so but somehow they've been decoupled from what you think your goal is. So you you know you have this goal that I'm going to read this, and I'm going to you know, read this whatever, um, read this book, and. Um, I'm going to focus on that, but somehow you find yourself um, 
having been thinking about something else for the last five minutes, you might be kind of looking out the window um, even, so maybe you're not even looking at the book anymore, or maybe you're just eyes of um, glaze over and you realize you maybe even turn the page, and but when you look back, you realize you've taken nothing in of the page that you've turned over. Um, and that's an interesting, I think that's a quite a telling example because it speaks of that you're, you're experiencing those thoughts, but somehow what's gone wrong is that you've sort of lost track of how the thoughts you're having relate to what you're trying to achieve, what you think you're trying to achieve, which is this um, reading. And so people often have this experience of suddenly kind of coming to, and, it, and experimentally people have studied that by just asking people just to do that. So they'll give them a, a passage of, you know, they get them to read a book for a few minutes and just indicate whenever um, they, realize that they'd stopped reading and were thinking about something else. And it happens reasonably often. So if you get people to read for half an hour, it'll happen a few times in that. Um, and it does seem to happen without people being aware because if you do the experiment a slightly different way and stop people every now and again and say, okay, for the last few seconds, were you actually reading and thinking about the book or were you thinking about something else? And quite often when you stop people, it pretty much actually it works in reading, works in pretty much any other activity as well, that they think they're probably thinking about something else up to sort of half of the time the research seems to, seems to show when you do it. So they're aware of their thoughts, but you know, that's because they're their thoughts, but they, they've sort of unaware of the fact that those thoughts are different from what they've set out to do, in, which in this case is reading a book. Just to linger on this idea of the self for a bit more, it feels like I have, there's a person, there's an agent inside of me who is doing the actions and what do you think constitutes the conscious self? Do you think that the self emerges from thoughts? And like, am I just a product of my thoughts and the environment that I interact with? It's, I, I mean, I suppose in the broad sense, it's hard to think what else there is, right? I mean, I guess going back to this idea of mind wandering and, and metacognition and control that we were talking about, right? Well, I think one, one thing to think about is that in, in, in the context of, you know, is, is this just a failure, right? So if we, if we get distracted or we um, um, don't do something as well as we might, or we, we're not 100% focused on a task, is that a failure? So, you know, because you might think, oh, you know, you, you talked about this sort of um, self or this maybe talk about maybe in terms of free will or whatever but this idea that you have you you make a decision about what you want to do right now um which is let's say we're sticking with this example of trying to read something in the library right that's you deciding it right and you want to control your thoughts and your behavior so that you kind of get through the work that you need to do to write your essay on time um and then so any other thoughts that you have if you find yourself you know, oh, actually, for the last 10 minutes, I've been looking out the window thinking about whatever it is, is in some sense a failure, right? And so who is this that, who, if I'm not in control, right, um, of my own thoughts, who is? One, one way to think about that, though, is, and I think this is where, a lot, and that was, sorry, I mean, that was certainly how initial research on this topic went. And, it, you know, you can just show fairly straightforwardly that, when people are mind wandering or distracted, they don't do a task as well, and it makes sense. But you know, but it's um, so if you're reading, you'll take in less. You'll be less able to answer questions about it. You you won't remember as much later. If you're driving, you're more likely to have an accident. Um, 
what you, you know, whatever activity you're doing, if you're distracted, you think about something else, you won't be doing it as well. For the most part, there are a couple of interesting exceptions, but for the most part, um, the overwhelming majority of tasks you'll do worse if you're not thinking about it and not focused on it. Um, so who is in control? So it seems like a, a, a failure, but then a theme in some recent research is thinking about well, what you know. Why would that be the case? You know, why would why would the brain, as it were, have evolved, or why would we have evolved this way, where we sort of to not have complete control? And I think one way to think about it is that that actually, although you set yourself a goal of reading this textbook right now, I mean, it, and, and that can be important to you, right? You know, you, you, re, you might really care about being conscientious and getting your essay in on time. It isn't the only thing going on in your life, right? Um, and the simple kind of way I often talk about that is, is that there's some distractions you really don't want to ignore, right? So for example, if one of the distractions, so you might think, here I am in the library, I'm focusing on reading, I must get this essay in our time. I don't want to be distracted by anything. Well, really anything? What about like a fire alarm that tells you the building's on fire? Well, actually you do want to be distracted by that, right? So there's clearly, if you think at one end of the spectrum, there are these sort of, um, absolutely you must pay attention to distractions, then there are certain things that you might agree are completely trivial, right? But probably in the middle, there are, there are lots of other things that you might get distracted by, which might be, you know, uh, what's going on in, the, in my friendship group? You know, this, you know, these people have fallen out, or like, you know, th these worries that you might have that aren't related to your work and that kind of perhaps you feel as intrusive when you're trying to concentrate on reading. But is it really the case that they're not important? I mean, is it really the case that, um, whether you get this essay in on time or to absolutely the best of your ability really doesn't matter that, you know, um, it, it matters, but it's not the sole objective of your life. And there are lots of other things you're having to think about, you know, and it might be sort of trivial of what's for lunch, but actually, you know, that's a decision at some point you've got to make. And so one way to, that people have begun to think about mind wandering is actually it's, is that you don't want to give yourself complete control over, over what you, um, think about because you might make a mistake where you say well look, the only thing I want to do is focus on my essay right but actually there, there could be some very important things going on like a fire alarm but actually there's a bunch of other things going on in your life that you ought to be thinking about like you know your social circle what to eat you know your grand plans um for life that might not seem important or you might, you, know, you might think that right now I want to focus on my essay, but actually there's a bunch of other things you, you're trying to do. And that, and that, so it's kind of very roundabout way of thinking about going back to who, you're, who yourself is when I think about this type of research, what it means, right? So part of yourself is this kind of conscious, deliberative um, agent making decisions about what I need to be doing right now. Um, but obviously also part of yourself is your kind of um, the long-term influences on you, what you think is important in relation to kind of your work, but also your, your social life um, and all these other things. And your behavior at any moment and where your thoughts go or a, a balance of all of those things or an interaction of all, the, all of those things, right? So partly we don't have complete control because I don't think we should have complete control. Um, and then if you think of that model then, this self of yours, is is this is this mix of all of these things some of which are learned habits of like what you know what's important what to think about um plus your kind of short-term goals that you've set yourself like you know, reading this this article to to write this essay yeah and that's very consistent with personal experience with how 
when you have a very urgent challenge, you tend to mind wander less and you're more focused on the task. Yeah, and one way to think about it is, yeah, you, something in you, part of you is constantly kind of working out the, the balance of importance of these things. And if, you know, the essay is a long way off, you might be more distractible than, like, you know, you're right at the deadline now. You really must get this done and you, you mind wander less. Or if it's just more important to you, yeah. And, you know, probably we've all had that experience of getting completely absorbed in an activity. Um, how similar is mind wandering and dreaming? <laughs> I don't know enough about dreaming really to um, talk about. I mean, I, I suppose part of it is, I suppose there's the, I think mind wandering tends to be a bit more structured. So mind wandering, it's, it's sort of spontaneous, but I think if you go back to that idea that it's, it might be not what you're, you kind of set yourself the task off to do for the next while, right? So you're sitting in the library, you might feel, right, for the next half an hour, I'm really going to concentrate on this article, and, but you find yourself thinking about something else. That's quite different, but you're still thinking about something and you're, you're awake and, and have, potentially having quite structured series of thoughts about it. In some sense, it's controlled and organized. And there's actually some evidence. People are quite surprised when they did brain imaging of, of mind wandering to find actually that parts of the frontal lobe that, that commonly are associated with kind of structured, organized thought and behavior tend to be more active, actually, not less some of these areas when people are mind wandering, suggesting it's not just this completely free flowing, free association. It's really actually some control thoughts that, that plays into then that what those ideas I was talking about a minute ago, that mind wandering is not necessarily just maladaptive. It's not a failure of the system necessarily. It's actually arguably a kind of feature of the system that you, there's a bunch of other stuff you need to be thinking about as well as your essay. Dreaming seems to be much, I mean, I don't know much about dreaming other than personal experience, but it's much, much less structured than that. Would you see dreaming, mind wandering and creative thoughts as a spectrum of spontaneous thoughts with differing levels of constraints? It's reasonable to think about that. And there is a, there's interesting evidence going back to that, that idea of a trade-off. I, I, I don't know much about dreaming, but there's certainly evidence that, um, for example, brain signatures that are associated with increased mind wandering are also associated with the increased creativity. And there, are, you know, it goes back to that sort of again that focus, right? If you if you narrowly focus on a very particular task, almost by definition, you're kind of shutting out a bunch of other stuff, which might um, and I think that relates to task, but it also potentially relates to, for example, you're trying to solve a problem. If you think about a pro there's a lot of interesting research on problem solving. If you think about a problem in a particular way. That can be very good, but if you're thinking about it the wrong way, you can just get completely stuck. And part of effective problem solving often is taking a step back. I think there's that, that, that goes back to that, what I was talking about, this sort of trade-off between focus and flexibility. You can't, you, you sort of, in a sense, can't have both. And a large part of creativity is just taking ideas from other domains and importing it into a problem to solve it. Right, yeah, and if you think about focus as that selectivity, if you, if, you know, you can imagine how selectivity is, is often very good, but actually if you're selecting, selecting against and ignoring the things that need, you need to solve this problem, then yeah, you're gonna get stuck. So we've spoken quite a bit on metacognition already, so, but just to get things clear, what do we really mean when we talk about metacognitive processes and how are they different from the cognitive processes? So yeah, so metacognitive processes are these ones that are thoughts about your thoughts, right? Um, so it comes partly from knowledge. So part of it is your own experience um, in the past, right? So I, I keep forgetting, I've forgotten things when I've gone to the supermarket or, you, or it might be theoretical knowledge, right? You know that memory is fallible. And so you know that, you know, um, 
so part of it's it's this it's kind of knowledge about how people think and how you think and partly it's about your experience of that as well so you know, how sure am i that um I, that's what I saw, you know, I saw this person at the crime scene, right, or um, your reflections on your learning, you know, it really felt like I, I, I learned that information well, so I don't need to study it, and I should, you know, devote my revision time to something else. So part of it's your experience of those processes of learning or perception, and part of it's your knowledge, and, and metacognition seems to be the, the, the interaction of those, right, so I might think, so, um, so I'm really bad at pub quizzes, but I'm often very confident about the answer. But so there, I'm answering a pub quiz. I'm absolutely certain this answer. So I've got that that experience, but it's it's tempered by the fact that I also know that in the past I've very confidently answered lots of pub quiz questions incorrectly. Right? And so you can think of that balance, right? Um, and people's metacognitions seem to reflect both of those. So your kind of long-term built-up experience of you know how well or badly you do certain tasks, like remembering or um, learning or solving problems and partly your experience in the here and now and those obviously aren't independent but it, the judgments we make at any given moment about how well we've learned how how close we are to a problem solution how good that solution is how clear what, what we've seen seems to reflect those both of those things mm. to what extent can we actually introspect about our own cognitive processes like how much do we actually have access to that's that's been a big discussion. So a lot of the research has been trying to understand in uh, on what basis are people making these judgments, right? And how reliable are they? Um, and the the answer is that they're they're reliable enough to be useful, but they're not perfect. So people are pretty good at judging, for example, what they've learned, but they make systematic errors. And a lot of education research is quite interested in that, like what what. What is it and why is it that um, sometimes people are very confident that they've learned something, but actually not? Because obviously that has a, an important aspect on, on learning. And so this idea of self-regulated learning is the, the sort of buzz phrase that gets used all the kind of way it's talked about in education. That, and that, you know, as you move through the school system, this is done in, 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 in into higher education, that you're, you're relying more and more on your independent study, right? And so these judgments matter more and more. And if you get them wrong, they can, you know, those, those errors can become more and more important because there aren't teachers watching over you and testing you every, every you know, and looking at your progress um, every day to kind of help scaffold you through that learning process. Mm, right. And do you see metacognition as a sort of loop that guides and adapts our cognitive yeah. processes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the idea of why we have it then. That's that little voice in your head is it, it's it's as it were, observing what you're doing and what you've done in the past and then helping, you know, and then it speaks as well. So it guides and monitors, and sorry, so it monitors and then it also controls. And so that's this kind of classic model of metacognition. Then it's like this regulatory feedback loop. So you've got the kind of basic processes, memory, problem solving, language, and so on. And then on, in, as it were, in the front of your head, because typically associated with the frontal lobes, you've got these evaluative monitoring processes that then influence what's going on right so and it might be in this kind of long term so making decision about you know do i go to the library today or do i take the day off based on how well i feel like i learned something yesterday or it might be moment by moment right so um a, a, a well-known sort of metacognitive um experience is the tip of the tongue right where you you think of a you, you think you can remember a word or a name and it's on the tip of your tongue but you can't bring it to bring it to mind 
And that's a, a sort of almost this metacognitive loop getting stuck where you've got just enough information. So, well, yeah, just enough information coming back to make you think that you do know it because you're not giving up, right? Because there are times obviously where you, you draw a complete blank and you think, well, I probably don't even know that. There's no point in me trying to remember. And there's just enough information to keep you thinking that it's on the tip of your tongue, but not enough to actually remember it. So that's that loop. Where, and you almost get stuck in this loop where you remember enough to keep you trying, um, but not enough to actually remember the answer. And so, the, so that, that control loop operates in, in kind of real time as well as making decisions about what to do today. It's like, I'm trying to remember something now. Should I keep trying to remember or should I give up and look it up, for example? When we think of, say, reinforcement learning, where you do a behavior and you get a reward and that behavior gets reinforced, that's a that's a very um, unconscious sort of um, process, right? With this metacognitive loop, is it? Um, do you see it as also happening very unconsciously, or um, do we have more conscious control over that? I think when people study metacognition, they're typically thinking it's much more this sort of conscious, deliberate act. So I think there's definitely evidence that this kind of regulation that we talked about a minute ago this idea of feedback loops built in definitely happens unconsciously as well so there's there's a really nice study actually on typing um that um and the way it worked was people would see a word on the screen and then they type it and as they type the letters that they're typing appear on the screen and they're supposed um and the, the trick in the experiment was that um sometimes what appeared on the screen as, as, the, as the participants in the experiment typed wasn't the same as the, the keys they were pressing didn't match up and it could match up in not match up in one or two ways so it could be that they type the correct word but what appears on the screen has a typo in it right or actually they typed it incorrectly but it's corrected so that what appears on the screen is is the is the correct word and what the researchers found was that um if you ask people what whether they typed it correctly it's completely dominated by what's on the screen so as long as the correct word appears on the screen as far as the the subjects the people doing experiment are concerned they, they typed it correctly um but interestingly e even even if they say they did it correctly if, if um they typed it incorrectly you see subtle changes in how they're doing it and so generally what you find is that if when people make mistakes they slow down a bit and that makes sense right you, if, if you're if you're doing things too quickly you can slow down be a bit more careful and, and that happened even when people said that no i typed it correctly if they'd made a mistake, it's as if they kind of, as it were, something in them knew and was slowing down. Um, but if, if, on the other hand, the, the thing that appeared on the screen was wrong, they wouldn't slow down. So their hands wouldn't slow down, even if they were saying they got it wrong. So you see this dissociation. So there's, there is this kind of conscious monitoring, and that happens for sure. But it does seem like, you know, especially in quite well-practiced tasks, we, we unconsciously monitor as well. And... You know, for example, in, in something like a skill task like typing. So my, most students these days are, are very good typists and, and they're, they're doing this kind of almost unconscious monitoring and you get some conscious control loop going on as well as this sort of high level monitoring that goes on. So there are many different types of control loops going on in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. What, what, what do we know much about the neural basis of these metacognitive control loops? Are they restricted to particular brain regions or are they emergent over the entire brain? I suppose it's, as the usual story, it's, it's a mix of those two stories where I think there's lots of 
thing systems are involved, but there are some that seem particularly important. So the I mentioned the frontal lobes, and it's kind of the anti the very frontal parts of the frontal lobes seem particularly important. So, and that's revealed. You can see it with brain imaging studies um, or studies of some patients where they've got damage through stroke or whatever um, in um, cause where they can do a task perfectly well so they can remember or make these um, kind of um, they can see um, but they're not very good at report reliably reporting on how well they remember or how well they see so normally as I said people are pretty good but not perfect at saying yes I'll remember this in the future or um, I can't remember the answer right now, but if I if I if I see the right answer, I'll know it. I'll recognise it when I see it. And people are pretty good at those. Um, and you can find patients whose memories are just kind of as good. Um, and these are patients with frontal lobe damage, whose memories is good, or they're, they're just as good at, at in the perceptual tasks at seeing. Um, but if you ask them, you know, did you get that right or wrong, or will you remember this in the future, where, even though you can't remember it now, those judgments are much less predictive. Of what they'll actually do so it seems like these kind of selective damage to these metacognitive processes um so that's part of the story so these these front the front parts of the front lobe seem particularly important but then when researchers have gone and looked and said you know across the whole brain where uh where, where do we find activity that looks like we'd expect if it was these metacognitive processes um you, you find it in lots of regions so that's the other part of the story so that's why i was sort of hedging my answer so so roughly speaking that the the, the, the the frontal, the, the anterior parts of the frontal lobe seem particularly important, but they're not the only parts. And I think part of the challenge at the moment is trying to figure out what all of the different regions are doing and how they fit together to produce these kind of quite complicated behaviours. And I mean, that's part of the story is that that, that what we're talking about, in, although we can call it all metacognitive, as I was just talking about a minute ago, they're very different kinds of behaviours being controlled, right? So whether I keep trying to remember a word that doesn't spring to mind right now in the moment is quite different from a, a decision about do I go to the library or not today and it's quite different from in a court do I say yep yeah, I, I, I recognize that person very clearly versus um, I think it might be them but I'm not not 100% sure and those are all very different kinds of behaviors and different kinds of judgments so it's not surprising that there's not one region that's your metacognitive region right? even if some parts of the brain do seem to be more important than others yeah it's interesting that there's this this distinction between how well you can perform and how well you evaluate your own performance yeah 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 and there's, there's some research on that you know, for, it seems like lots of people have heard of the, the kruger and dunning effect that um I don't know if you do you know that one yeah. so this sort of this paper that so it's from this original paper but there's been lots of research since on this unskilled but unaware of it phenomenon where where it seems to be the better you get at a task, the better you also get at um, knowing how good you are. Um, and the, when you're first learning or when you're bad at something, you're, that's when you're also worst at evaluating it. And that, that has interesting implications um, that, for example, Kruger and Dunning showed. Yeah. But yeah, so that, and that, so part of, for, for us as researchers as well, those, those errors that people make are quite informative. And so, so one of the strategies people use in research is trying to find the situations in which people systematically um, overestimate how much they know, for example, or underestimate um, how, how clearly they saw something as a way of understanding what information they're using to make that judgment. Mm. 
so yeah, on this topic, how much, to what extent does metacognition actually affect learning? So, you know, there are people who say that if you have a belief that you can be great at math and you're not afraid to take on challenging math problems, then that metacognitive belief itself will, will allow you to become great at math. So like a self-fulfilling prophecy type of thing. So do you agree with that? I think it seems to be true to an extent, right? That you're, that, I, I, you know, believing that you can be great at math doesn't guarantee it, but it's, you can see how it's immediately helpful because it, it affects your, how much time you put into things, how, how willing you are to carry on. So uh, uh, an example of, of a kind of metacognition that's, that's become quite important in education, and perhaps you've got this in mind, is the growth mindset idea that um, this is your, your metacognitive beliefs about the nature of intelligence, right? If you think that um, intelligence is something that's fixed, um, as opposed to something um, that intelligence is essentially a skill that you can learn that 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 leads you to different kinds of behaviors so the classic example of that is or the idea is that think about exams or tests right so if you, if you think of intelligence as fixed it's essentially a challenge right because if you do badly in a test it shows you that you're not intelligent and you never will be and so tests become a threat essentially versus if you have a growth mindset as it's called so this is carol dweck's and many other people's work since um if you think about intelligence as, as, as a, a learned skill, a, a test identify where you can grow and improve, and then you can actually in, you know, look forward to taking tests because it can help you identify things. And, and that might then affect your behavior as well, because if you, if you think you're good at something, um, in, in, if you have a fixed idea about intelligence, you know, you, you, you'll, you've tended choices will be to, to things that you find easy or perhaps, you know, where you, um, versus growth mindset, you know, you might be more open to, to taking things on. Mm. Yeah. Oh, we've alluded to this quite a bit already. Um, so metacognition seems to be a very abstract control process. So what are the experimental approaches that we generally use to study this in humans? In humans, we just, we tend to ask people what they think, right? In the sense of, um, we might give them a judgment, a, they might show them something and say, how, how, how confident are you that you saw this versus that, right? And we might do it in the lab, we do it in, with very simple, carefully controlled tasks. We know exactly what we're showing people. Um, so did you see something or not, for example? And how sure are you? And so we might get them to, to, to rate on a scale, you know, from, um, I'm guessing what I saw to I'm absolutely certain what I saw or anything in between. Um, sometimes you get people to bet and so a way of kind of getting at people's certainty is say well how much would you bet on that right um, and if you're not willing to bet very much that's a sign that you weren't sure if, you, if you're willing to bet you know, the highest bet possible that shows you are sure. Um, so, so commonly in people that's what you do so you get people to um, so that would be a perceptual task or in memory, you get them to try and learn something which might be a list of words if we you know, want, or it might be a passage of text. And we, we might say, you know, how well did you learn that? Or more specifically, you know, how much of that, how, how, what percentage do you think you'll get if, when we test you on this tomorrow? It's that metacognitive judgment, yeah. We, we spoke about the limits of introspection. So do you think that these introspective reports are fundamentally limited? They, they are fundamentally limited um, in the sense that they're never perfect, but they, like I said, they can be pretty good. And 
part of again the research interest and then its application is thing is finding what makes it um what makes the judgments more likely to be effective so it turns out for example in terms of evaluating your your learning you're much more accurate after a delay so if you just wait half an hour and think how well did i study you're actually much more likely to be um accurate and that there's interest in that then speaks to um and tells us about on what basis people are making those judgments so in the moment a lot of what people evaluate seem to evaluate their learning on is just how it felt right so and then you can be affected by lots of things that are actually predictive of your memory which is like um how funny was the lecturer let's say so think about a lecture or you know how clearly did they speak how how loudly did they speak um and that then that facts into that judgment because of course in the world it tends to be reasonably predictive but as long you know, so you think about the volume of a of a speaker right but as long as you can hear it well enough to hear all the words it doesn't matter but still that you know, volume in it generally correlates with how well you remember and so in the moment people are quite influenced by these cues that a reason you know kind of work better than chance but they're not that great whereas after a delay you've got this really useful cue which is to kind of think well how much can i actually bring to mind and how much can I retreat? And then that becomes a much better predictor of then what you'll remember in a week's time or a month's time or whenever the, whenever the exam is or whenever you next need that information. Can we study metacognition in animals as well? So I guess the question there is, do other animals show metacognitive processes? So we can study metacognition in animals. There's a debate about whether animals have metacognitive processes and that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm from my personal scientific view is that it's pretty clear that they do. Um, in the sense that we were talking about a, a moment ago, that you can think of these sort of um, evaluation and monitoring loops as being of very different complexities, right? So some are very kind of low level, automatic, um, don't require or necessarily seem to involve conscious thought versus others that do. So, but a lot of the debate in when people study. Um, I think a lot of the, the heat in that discussion in, in the animal learning and animal metacognition literature comes from the fact that in people, a lot of study, things we're studying are, are conscious and quite high level. And so you can imagine that there's a discussion or differing views about the degree to which animals are conscious that will have kind of very high level processes. But if you allow for the fact that there's, there's a range of different levels of kind of complexity of metacognition, um, then I think th th there is, the evidence is pretty clear that there's there's at least some of these kinds of evaluation and regulation going on. Mm. So it's it's likely that animals also have thoughts. I mean, I th I think so. <laughs> um, uh, but that's an interesting one. Right? So I mean, they they certainly, if you think in the kind of um, terminology, they certainly represent things about the world. Oh, well, they certainly, my view is that they certainly represent things about the world and um, act according to those kind of internal representations. So they've got stuff going on in their brains where you know, that's, um, and they're acting on and their behavior is governed by that. Whether they have conscious thoughts is obviously a much harder question and it depends on what animal you're talking about. Um, but, you know, I think the whole of pretty much all of you know, modern research on this topic of in cognitive neuroscience in, as it's studying animals assumes that um, animals' brains in some sense are representing features of the world and that's it's those representations that govern the behavior. 
Um, how that translates into conscious thought is a tricky one, right? That's, yeah, I don't have a, a, I don't have a scientific view on that. I have a personal view about, you know. But. And um, in your research, you also use quite a lot of computational models. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how, how, do, how, how are computational models used to study these processes? Um, well, part of the, the idea, going back to what I was just talking about, is that um, a, a, an idea that's underpinning all of this is that we can think of the brain as a computing device. Right? So we can think of it as representing features of the world, which can be about the world, right? It's, you know, I saw this with this degree of certainty, right? So that's the kind of the, the, the perception and the metacognitive aspect of it, right? Those are representations, there's information, you can think of them as like statements. Of, of, um, and so part of the story then is that we, in this kind of computational view of the mind is that we can think of, of the brain as rep, make, having representations of the world and transforming those representations and those representations are the thoughts, right? So it might be, I saw this and I'm this certain, that then leads to a certain behavior, which might be a communication, right? So you're an eyewitness in a court and you report that, right? I, I, I think I saw that person and I'm 95% sure, right? Or it might govern a behavior of yours. And this goes back, kind of, if you think about animals, they're not telling us what they think, but they might express it in their behavior. That, for example, if they're more sure, they might wait longer to see if they get a reward for that decision that they made. So if you imagine that the, the, this animal is gonna get a reward for um, its correct decisions. But if, if it gets it wrong, the best thing for it to do is to move on to the next, next um, task. You can see how long they're prepared to wait for a reward before moving on to the next task as an indication of how certain they are, right? So that's an, an indication of animal, and you know, you might be people doing this as well. Um, so part of what we're doing then is we're trying to say that the behaviors that we observe, which might be what people are talking, telling us, right? Or it might be what people or animals are doing, depend on these internal representations. And so we ought to be able as a as scientist to build computational models that have these representations and that then act in, in these sorts of ways based on those. And so that's, that's so it's a way of sort of, it's partly a way of testing out are our theories as good as we think they are, right? Because we, we've built this idea of the sorts of computations that are going on in people's and animals' brains that lead to the sorts of behaviors. and so. Well, if that's the case, then we, we should be able to build a model of that in a, in a kind of artificial computer, and it ought to behave in similar ways. So it ought to kind of make mistakes in the, the types of situations and the types of ways that people or animals do. Um, part of it's that I think computational models can be quite useful because um, they, it's often surprising um, in the sense of that you might in, think that a system built the way you've described it or kind of in that you think you've tested experimentally is going to behave a particular way and then often you build a model and find out actually that it doesn't and that can be a useful kind of sanity check for you but it can also behave in ways that you didn't realize in a good way because so you build this model and you think it's going to explain you know this set of phenomena that you want you're interested in but actually when you run it you start to find that it's exhibiting other kinds of behaviors that look like other um things you've read about and you've, you've seen experiments on and you realize that there's a link between these phenomena that you never realize. And so models can be quite helpful in that way too. 
So sometimes it can tell you your theory is actually not as good as you thought it was because you build it and this model doesn't work and doesn't produce the kind of behavior you thought it would. Um, and sometimes it, you can realize actually your, your theory and your model, your ideas are better than you realized actually, because it's suddenly it, when you build a model of it, it starts to do all sorts of interesting things. And You realize that you yeah. don't need that many parameters to specify complex behavior. Exactly. Yeah. You get these sort of emergent properties that when you start to build a complex system, it starts, it can exhibit behaviors that um, are not predictable from the kind of basic elements of it, and which is the story of the brain, right? You know, you, all the neurons are fairly simple. Well, they're incredibly complex, but in terms of the, the basic computation they're doing, it's quite simple. You put 86 billion of them together and you get something pretty interesting, right? So there's emergent properties and you get that in a very small scale in, in these computer models. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Another, I mean, and it's like another way we use computer models that's sort of related in a way is looking at, um, so one of the aspects I'm interested in is how people make decisions and evaluate them individually, but also it, one of the applications of this is in thinking about in groups um, and networks of individuals. And so you can, you can also build models and think about, well, what would happen in a network of individuals who are making decisions together and interacting and learning to trust or distrust one another? And that, and you can see how individuals' decisions then play out at a network level in terms of what, and so that's that's another use of computational models where again, that there's the idea of emergent properties that you can build agents that have certain um, features. So for example, like they make decisions, but they're a bit biased and they tend to trust other people um, more who agree with them, what happens if you build a network of agents like that? And so you can think about in what, things that are true and plausible at an individual level and think, well, what happens if, if we then set these agents to interact with one another and what sorts of groups emerge and what sorts of beliefs emerge? And that's another way in which we use computational models. So not just modeling what goes on in individuals' heads, but also what happens in a network of interacting people or individuals or agents. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting because you, you normally think of group interactions as something that depends very heavily on like the subtleties of human nature. And it's crazy that you could model that in a, with agents and just probabilities and representations. It, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of simplification and that's one obviously a discussion is how much simplification is too much. And different researchers will take different views on it. But one, I think as long as you're clear with this sort of type of agent-based modeling that you're just saying, you know, what would, it's a sort of hypothetical thought experiment. Of, and you're not, you're not trying to say, this is what's going on in the world necessarily, but you're trying to say, if people thought like this, what would happen? Um, and use it as a way of exploring what sorts of emergent properties you, you get. It can be useful for that way. But I think you, your first intuition or your first reflection is, is completely valid and, and, and important for people doing this kind of work to have in mind because actually there's a lot of subtlety and um, you can build models that say, for example, when we do it, something that might happen is that you have um, a thousand interactions with everybody in your network. And that might just not be true in the world. You might not have that many opportunities to learn about the people around you. And so you have to be really careful about what assumptions you're making without even realizing it. You work at, you know, the, um, both neuroscience and psychology. Do you think that these two fields are, will ultimately converge as we uh, learn more and more? Or do you think that they're 
studying qualitatively, like fundamentally different things? I think they're asking different questions often. So um, I don't think it's so much, they'll converge in the sense that there'll be more and more for neuroscientists and psychologists to say to each other. But I'm not one of the people who think either that, and there are people out, out there who think this, that, um, for example, once once we've, we've kind of done neuroscience properly, they won't, we won't need psychology anymore. Or that, conversely, there are other people who would say, well, you know, neuroscience just doesn't help you study and understand the mind. I think that they'll converge in, not in the sense that one will swallow the other or they're just complete, you know, they're irrelevant to each other. Um, but I think there'll always be sort of psychological questions um, in the same way that there'll be neuroscientific questions. Um, it'll just be that there's, it's often, it's sort of like, you know, philosophy of science levels of explanation idea that, that, that there are questions and regularities in human behavior that aren't meaningfully captured by talking about cells or molecules or. Yeah, do you have like, could you give us some examples of these, the types of different questions these two fields are asking? Yeah, well, so I suppose one, I suppose, you know, the metacognition angle is an important one, like that in a sense that, that it, if you think about this, you know, this idea that, um, imagine you're trying to predict somebody's behavior or you're trying to predict what they've learned or, and what they'll do. And part of, um, part of that story has to be um, in terms of, um, if you think about people's decisions about what they're trying to learn, um, understanding how they're evaluating their memories, right? And that's a kind of psychological judgment. Now you might in the end have a sense of what the neural basis of that is, but there's a meaningful statement to say that the reason I went to the library today is that I just thought I hadn't learned something very well yesterday, right? And that's just the right explanation. Now you might have a very complicated say, um, story to tell about at a neuroscience level that you know um, there's this representation in the hippocampus and when you retrieve it you get this pattern of activity in the in the temporal lobe centers that are responsible for semantic knowledge and all this kind of stuff but ultimately the best explanation for why i'm going to the library tomorrow is this and that the information i was using was for example an evaluation of how much i could recall right now influenced by these other cues about how um, interesting i found the lecturer right and those are just psychological level descriptions yeah so we've been talking about metacognition um for a long time today um do you ever think about consciousness so with this metacognitive conscious awareness loop why do we need to have a conscious awareness there um i don't do I honestly think about it that much i mean partly it's one of the kind of joys of teaching is that because it's a question that comes so you could you could perfectly well I mean you might be surprised from the outside have a have a career entirely in psychology where you never think and talk scientifically about consciousness and that's more or less me and probably most of my colleagues um but because it's an interesting question and one that you know students are interested in I, I, I not forced to think about but it's a nice opportunity to think about something that I'm not forced to otherwise um I suppose the, the, the view that I subscribe to is one that um, 
or that influences my thinking about this, particularly in the context of my research, is this idea of the kind of global workspace idea. I don't know if you've come across that, which is um, so mostly associated with um, Stan Dehane, um, who, um, and it's the idea that the purpose of kind of a feature of conscious representations, in a sense, their purpose then is that that they're they're um, it's information that's kind of broadcast globally. It's this idea of a global workspace that rather than having these modules for doing certain things like processing language or, um, or for perception or movement and memory, it's a place where, um, or a mechanism by which information from all of the different parts of your mind and brain can send an Im information to and influence one another. And so I'm interested in that in metacognition. So, and part of, sorry, and, and so part of an idea there is that it's flexible, right? Because you don't know, um, what information might be relevant to solving a particular problem, right? And and so having a mechanism by which you can make information globally available is um, can be really important. And so that that tends to be how I think about that in the context of my research. So you know, like you say we talked a lot about metacognition, but that's I guess what we're talking about today in a way. Um, you need your information, for example, about. Um, how well you learn something to influence your decision about what you do tomorrow, right? So those are and those those are dealt with in very different ways by different parts of the brain over different timescales, right? But you need to make sensible adaptive learning decisions. Your information that might be kind of how much information went into your hippocampus in yesterday's lecture to decide whether you go to the library tomorrow or take the day off. Okay. And so one thought then is that that's that's the feature of this conscious global workspace that your memory system can, information from your memory system can be put in this global workspace about how much information went in, right? That can then influence lots of other kinds of decisions that don't relate to memory at all in a way. It's a decision about whether you go to the library or not, which is, you know, and then it's gonna perhaps result in some memory in the future, but it's not about memory itself. And so to have that globally broadcast information that allows you to respond flexibly is, is an argument about what consciousness is for. And that seems to work pretty well in the context of what I'm, I'm interested in. So like a <clears throat> emergent phenomenon that occurs from the interaction of all of these metacognitive and cognitive processes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to apologize for another meaningless question. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, they're, they're hard to answer maybe. But not really. <laughs> so, no, so, uh, yeah, so meta, we talk about meta, all these metacognitive loops and all these neural mechanisms for them. Does that, do you think that rules out free will? No, no, why, why do you think it might? Well, if all of our actions are determined by the neural activity in our brains and that's all very deterministic, then there, it, um, it's hard to see where free will comes into play. Yeah, I suppose it depends what you want from free will. Cause I mean, one of the things I talked about was how these, these feedback loops and not just based on kind of the here and now, but also the, the kind of sum of your experience. You know, I'm the kind of person who, or in the past I've done this, or these are the influences that I've had. And if you allow all of those things to kind of go into the mix, there's a, there's a you in there that's that's kind of making these decisions, right? And and it's a, you know, we talked about this, how your behavior and who the self is, it, making these decisions about what to do now is a really complicated Thing that reflects, you know, yes, what I what I've decided is my priority right now, but also the sum total of my habits, um, 
my ingrained um, preferences for what to think about and so on. Right? It, it, I think there's enough room for a, a self in there and something that you might call a, a free will in the sense that, you know, it's a person will differ from everybody else that you might you might differ from moment to moment and based on the kind of the, the, the sum of all these influences. There's no, ma I suppose there's no magic there. Um, yeah. The, yeah. There's, there's nothing in there that seems to me in, incompatible with the idea of free will. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but I'm not a philosopher, so there, there, you know there are a lot. I imagine there's kind of there's a long, a much longer discussion we could have about what it means to be free and that kind of thing. But yeah. Yeah. I guess like when we talk about decision making, like it seems to you like you have a a choice of all of these things that you could do. Um, so you see, it seems free in that sense, but then the the activity that goes on to perform the computation and the decision making that's like determined by all of your genetics environment and all of those stuff and in a sense um i guess you're not free in the way that if you turn back the time you would make the same decision over and over again mm. yeah yeah I mean, there's something interesting about that. If if you turn back time, I mean, would you would you want? Is it free if it's completely random though? Right. So if you turn back time and you're in exactly the same state, would it be? What would what would determine you making a different decision? Because if it's a coin toss, then is that free? That's not free either, right? No, randomness isn't free. I guess yeah. I guess it's a sort of you need to redefine free. Yeah. Um, so last question, uh, what advice do you have for young scientists? Um, I suppose I, an obvious one is to pass on advice that I was given. So part, one thing I was taught earlier on, because if, if, if you go into a, a career in science, there are lots of things go wrong in the sense of um, experiments that you're convinced will work that don't work, or grants that you apply for and spend months laboring over this, this beautiful idea that people just tell you that they don't want to fund or a paper that they say isn't good enough for their journal. And that a lot of what makes people successful, you know, almost everybody going in is, is clever and hardworking. Um, and what, according to one of my mentors, is what to, to sort of distinguishes successful, many successful people from others is perseverance, is that when you, when you get that rejection, just keeping going and realizing that's just part of it, um, I mean, practically, I think, as we were chatting about earlier, um, that's part of, I think you were saying your inspiration for kind of doing these, having these conversations is finding out what it's, what it actually involves. So actually kind of finding ways to get involved and seeing what science actually is. It's really hard, like almost any job from the outside is completely opaque and you have no idea what people spend their time doing. And I think uh, as a student kind of trying to, um, well, you often have the opportunity to do a research project, but kind of doing a bit of research yourself, that can be one. Working in a research lab, if you've got the opportunity to doing it, you know, and so certainly students come along to our, our group meetings and see how we talk about our science and what, what people, research people are doing. And those are, those are good opportunities, I think, just seeing what the, what the life actually involves, either by doing some research or, or getting involved in a lab and seeing that, that side of things, yeah. Or you can listen to more podcasts like this.
Absolutely, yeah. That's the best possible one. Sorry, I should have said that first. Nick, um, it's a great honor to have you here. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks very much for the invitation. It's been really fun talking about the stuff.